St. Dominic's Catholic Church in San Francisco presents a homily by Bishop Robert Christian on January 13, 2019, the Solemnity of the Baptism of the Lord. Today's Gospel is taken from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 3, verses 15 to 16 and 21 to 22, proclaimed by Deacon Jimmy Salcido. The people were filled with expectation, and all were asking in their hearts whether John might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I am baptizing you with water, but one mightier than I is coming. I am not worthy to loosen the thongs of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. After all the people had been baptized, and Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. You might have thought that the Epiphany was behind us with last Sunday's celebration. But the Church cannot do things in single events. There's something about the number three that's attractive. And so this Sunday we have the second of three Epiphanies. Some prayers put them all together, but we space the events out one week after another, and it's all Epiphany. The first, of course, is the visit of the Magi to the Christ child. The second epiphany or manifestation of Jesus' divinity, the manifestation of him as priest and prophet and king of universal dominion, is today the baptism. When the voice of the Father from heaven says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Other accounts, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And the third epiphany is next week's gospel, which is the story of the first miracle of Jesus according to the gospel of John, which is the changing of water into wine at the wedding feast at, at Cana. And at that, in that account, of course, Jesus says to his mother at a certain point, when he seems to refuse to change the water into wine, that his hour has not yet come. And that hour, of course, looks forward to Jesus' priestly consummation, his self-offering immolation on the cross on Calvary. So we have in last week's gospel a sense of Christ as king. In next week's gospel, a sense of Christ as priest. In this week's gospel, a sense of Christ as prophet. And when we talk about baptism, we say that those who are baptized receive a share in Christ's priestly and prophetic and kingly ministry. We receive from him those things, but they are not just meant to be gifts that we keep clutched within ourselves. They are gifts to be shared, and so we have a sense of vocation with baptism, where we are to be agents of sanctification, priestly for others. We are to be speakers of the truth, prophetic for others. And we're not supposed to have dominion over others exactly, but certainly we have a sense of care and solicitude. 
And we recognize that this is not just all coming out from each individual, it's to be received. And so in the community of the church, which we enter through the sacrament of baptism, we also acknowledge that we need Christ who ministers to us not only in the sacraments, not only in the proclamation of scripture, but Christ who ministers to us through the ministrations of other people. Maybe sometimes clumsily, but nevertheless real. And so this Sunday, we are celebrating the epiphany of baptism. Now, when Jesus was baptized, he was not baptized to the same purpose that we are baptized. We are baptized to be liberated from the power of sin. We will still feel temptation. We can still sometimes sin. But we don't believe that sin and sin's author, Satan, is going to have some kind of ineluctable, intransigent hold on us that controls us. We achieve a liberation through baptism that liberates us to do the good, to combat sin, to acknowledge that our life is not just what we see here, but our life goes on to heaven where there is no more sin. After purgatory, there is no more hold that sin has, no attraction that sin has, even the least, on us. Christ did not have that because, as St. Paul reminds us, he was like us in all things but sin. So when we are baptized and liberated from sin, we begin to receive a share in Christ's own mission. Whereas when Christ was baptized, his mission was made manifest. And the Father, in a sense, said, Okay, here is my beloved Son. Now, you imply, he implies, watch him. Listen to him. Look at his miracles. Look and pay attention to Christ for the duration of his public ministry. Do that because something analogous is going to be asked of you in your conversion from sin, in your turning away from sin in the sacrament of baptism. Jesus was eternally with the Father and eternally with the Spirit. We enter into that eternity through the sacrament of baptism. And we do so in a very special way because in baptism, as also in confirmation and the sacrament of holy orders, a characterization of our souls is given, by which we mean Christ enters into a covenant, a relationship with us, and he does not change his mind. So we might waver in the intensity of our faith, but he remains committed. And so we have this assurance that even at the end of our lives, even if our lives have not gone particularly well, there is the possibility, the hope, of conversion and final perseverance. Today, in the second reading from the Acts of the Apostles, we see that when an adult is baptized, it is a confirmation of his or her pre-existing faith. But the whole household of Cornelius was baptized, including infants. And when an infant is baptized, a disposition, an inclination to faith is received, which opens up that child to penetrate the truthfulness of the truths of the faith, presumes 
that the child will be raised in a context of faith, but there's a, a capacity to receive the faith that is given in the sacrament of baptism. We also see in the story of the baptism of the household of Cornelius that both the author of the Acts of the Apostles, who was St. Luke, and the protagonist in the story, who is St. Peter, are astonished that these divine supernatural signs should occur among people who were not of the chosen people but they were in fact chosen. So we are successors to a chosen people, all of us under the dominion of Christ. He's not come for a a small group, he has come for the entire world. Now, that's a a wonderful thing, but there are few difficulties in this. Um, Christ in his earthly lifetime, the time after his baptism and before his um, his, uh, crucifixion and death, founded a church. He did it in different ways, you know. We associate the foundation with Peter. There are other ways we talk about him forming a church. But he founded a church to be a sacrament of him, to be an image of him, to convey his truth, his message, to celebrate sacramentally his acts, his saving acts. The account we have of the institution of the Eucharist just before his uh, arrest and so on, that account shows the connection between his will during his earthly lifetime and the effect of his will that is not impeded by the passing of time, but continues. And so we say that if Christ saved through his death on the cross, he saved us through his death on the cross, we can't mean that automatically everybody since the cross has been saved because our free will is still involved in this. We can still turn away from Christ. What we do mean is that access to that salvation is stably to be had when the church is most like Christ which is, objectively speaking, in the celebration of the sacrifice of the Mass. So Christ saves. Christ saves through the Church. The Church saves through the Mass. When a priest celebrates the Mass, this is explicit in the Eucharistic prayer. The prayer says that the Mass is being offered, the sacrifice of Christ is being offered at that time, sacramentally on the altar, for those who are present, those who are his people through baptism, and for all others who might turn to the Lord with sincerity of heart. And it is also offered for the dead, those who die in the Christian faith, and those whose faith is known only to God. So it's an incredible thing, the Mass. Incredible thing, what happens at the Mass. There is... This is important because there has been an unfortunate tendency at times in the church to take a slogan, a very old slogan, the slogans are always sort of dangerous, to take a slogan and imply that uh, only those who are sort of card-carrying Catholics are able to be saved. No religion really has a monopoly on this. But uh, the, the, the slogan in Latin, I'll give it in Latin so that you'll be confused, and I'll try to add some clarity. The slogan is extra ecclesiam nulla salus. 
And it often was translated as outside the church there is no salvation. As if you had to be inside the church with your baptismal certificate and your safe deposit box. And if you were inside the church, then you could be saved. If you were outside the church, no hope for you. And so we had to take a, a fire hose at baptism and to spray everybody and hope that they would be inside the church. Well, in the 1940s, there was a Jesuit priest who was chaplain at Harvard University who was very literal about this. Outside the church, there's no salvation. And, of course, it it just makes no sense to hold that quite literally, but he did. And eventually, the doctrinal office of the Vatican, at that time called the Holy Office, so the Office of the Inquisition, issued a, uh, you know, some, some texts asking him to recant. He would not, and so the punishment was excommunication. So imagine, you think that outside the church there's no salvation, and then you're put outside the church because you hold that outside the church there is no salvation. About 30 years later, this Father Feeney came back, kind of reluctantly, but he did come back. But the point is that outside the church there's no salvation is a very bad way to understand this slogan. And I would suggest to you that a better way to understand it is to say, apart from the church there is no salvation. Because the church is most fully herself in an action, in the action of the Eucharist, when she celebrates again and again and again the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. Apart from that, there is no salvation. How that will apply to the atheist, to the Muslim, or whatever, that's something you I don't know and neither do I. But it's certainly an article of faith that it is the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary that saves. He's the only Savior. And he saves through the church when the church is most fully herself, which is at the sacrament of the Mass. That being the nobility of what we do on Sundays, it's distressing to learn that in the Archdiocese of San Francisco in the last year, there's been a 5% drop in attendance at Sunday Mass. Um, St. Dominic's is one of the parishes that has had increases in attendance over the last few years, but overall, 5% down this year, last year, 2% drop. So the trend is not a good trend. The trend in terms of baptisms is equally grim, in terms of marriages, equally, equally grim. There are many possible explanations, the least of which, of course, is the length of homilies. But there are also the scandals that put the lie to all we claim about the sacrality of the church, the holiness and the nobility of her mission, her connection with Jesus Christ, her empowerment by the Holy Spirit, her orientation to heaven. When you see some of the scandalous behavior of leadership in the church, you begin to wonder if there's any credibility whatsoever. And it's pretty alarming to see that people lose credibility, and it's even more alarming that people behave scandalously. If you want to get perhaps some better idea of how to uh, understand your and my baptismal calling to be priestly, prophetic, and kingly people, you might look to the Dominican novices who live here because they are not made members of the order through a sacrament. 
They simply profess to follow their baptismal calling in a conspicuous way. So they should be conspicuous. And we try to look at them and say, well, we need to pray for them too. But they pray for us as well. It behooves us to listen to the Father's injunction to listen to the Son. It behooves us to augment our capacity not only to to listen, to receive, but also to respond and to minister what we have received because we are better equipped having heard the Son, having communed with the Son, and so forth. We receive the body and blood of the Son in communion. And if we have that understanding of church and of ourselves as church, it also behooves us to be critical and to express our criticisms when the church membership and hierarchy do not do what they are supposed to do, do not form people the way they are supposed to to form people, do not show the proper humility, and so forth. That's certainly important. But we also need to uh, remember that there's an objective quality to the sacrament of baptism. It really does make us children of the Father. And so when we see the numbers of baptisms declining, when we see young people getting married either in the church or not in the church, but putting off baptism, maybe in the name of an idea of liberty on the part of their children that should be respected, we have to think, wait a minute. We do a lot for children before we let them free. They grow towards autonomy. But in the meantime, we make decisions about their education, about the food they're going to eat, all sorts of things. We know that when they grow up, they may turn away from this, but we also know that if they grow up with some sense of values and, and, and habits and so on, that they might actually be on a good path. And the same is true with regard to the sacrament of baptism. And so, as we begin this 2019, let us resolve to make better use of the graces of our own baptism, to be more thankful of the way Christ saves us in the church which we enter when we are immersed, when we emerge from the baptismal font. And let us be people who not only listen to the voice, of the Father, but who also can repeat the same message that Jesus Christ himself has given us.